believe this? If yes, worship. If no, pray, Lord, I need to know your love today. Is this true for you? Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of his love, leading onward, leading homeward to my glorious rest above. May you know the love of Christ in your life and in this moment. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, and I will ask you to stand for this. Standing is a posture of readiness, attendance. We hear the word of the Lord and we stand before it ready to be changed, ready to be used. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. And now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one, just as he determines. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. And so it is with Christ. This is the word of God today. Please be seated. In sports, they call it the sweet spot or the zone. Uh, it's when the athlete, athlete is doing everything right. Every swing is a hit of the ball. Every pass is made. Every, every stroke hits the fairway or the green. It's a sweet spot. It's when you kind of find your place and everything seems to just come together for you. Uh, other areas have a sweet spot. Finances have a sweet spot when... You seem to pick the right investments all the time. Or in business, you have a sweet spot where you find the career that totally fits who you are, what you're good at, what you love to do, and you just feel like, wow, this is what I was made for. The kingdom of God has a sweet spot for us. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, there is a sweet spot for us. And that sweet spot happens when we find that place in the kingdom and in God's mission that God has created us for. 
that God has given us gifts and a personality and placed us in a certain time and place that we might serve his kingdom in the way that he's called us to. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about the fact that we've been saved by grace through faith and created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And when we find our sweet spot, we find that we are doing those things that God has both called and created us to do. Now we are, as you know, if you've been here a few weeks, we're talking through the book of Acts and we've paused for a couple of Sundays to talk about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is, is the dominant presence in the book of Acts. He is the one who is acting through the Christians, through the followers of Jesus Christ to accomplish the work of the kingdom and the mission that Christ gave to his followers. And we stopped to talk about the Holy Spirit for a couple of weeks because we think it's important to have a little bit of context and understanding who the Holy Spirit is and what he does and what he calls us to do before kind of continuing our journey through the book of Acts. So that's why we've paused. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about who the Holy Spirit is and what his primary work is. And this week, we want to talk about something particular to the work of the Holy Spirit, and that is the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what the Scripture sometimes calls spiritual gifts. And we've talked about this before, but it's been a number of years, and it's worth revisiting this this morning because this whole idea of the gifts of the Spirit is crucial for us, for our understanding of what it means for us to function as individuals in the body of Christ and corporately as the body of Christ. And so this is a little bit of a teaching lesson, but I want you to hang with me because at the very end, I'm going to give you some particular things to think about in order to discern to the best of our ability with the wisdom that God gives to discern what is my gift? What what are the areas that I think God has uniquely called me to serve in? And I encourage you to follow along. There's a little outline in your bulletin too. There's a lot of points in it and you might want to jot down some notes and, and think through this later as well. So some comments to provide a little biblical context, first of all. Um, The idea of a category of things called spiritual gifts comes to us primarily from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 and chapters 14. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, which I've just read, the Apostle Paul is teaching about the ministry and the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how that activity looks different in every person. It's unique for everyone. There are different kinds of gifts, he says, but the same spirit. And then he goes on to list some of them in verse 8. And this is a different translation than the one I just read. So a different perspective. It says, To one is given through the the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. After Paul writes that, he goes on to his famous metaphor of the church as the body of Christ, where different members of a body serve different functions, but together 
form an essential unit. There is a oneness to the body. And then at the end of that discussion, he gives it a bit of another list. And I should move off center so I can read this better. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And after that, he goes on to the famous chapter 13, which is the description of love. And then in chapter 14, he gives specific attention to two particular gifts, tongues and prophecy. And he sets that discussion in the context of the public worship of the body of Christ. And so that whole unit of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, is the primary place where we find biblical teaching about the spiritual gifts. Now, there are two more passages that we've traditionally understood as talking about spiritual gifts, complementing this passage. And they don't mention spiritual gifts, just the word gifts. The first one is Romans chapter 12, where Paul is again talking about the body of Christ, And there he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then also there's Ephesians chapter 4, which again uses the metaphor of the body in that passage. And Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Now, if we bring all of these passages together in trying to understand this thing called spiritual gifts, we notice that this category of things that we call spiritual gifts is very, very broad. For example, some of them sound like roles or offices, like apostle or pastor, teacher, or evangelist. Some of these gifts sound an awful lot like what we'd call natural abilities, administration or leadership. Some are very clearly supernatural abilities, like healing, or speaking in tongues, or the ability to work miracles. And some of them just seem to be what we might call personality traits, Um, hospitality, generosity, showing mercy to people. But the idea behind all of these different things is that the Holy Spirit of God has wired people differently and has called them, called us, to serve in different functions according to different personalities, different abilities, different gifts that we have. And out of all of this, churches have come to speak in what I would call almost technical terms about the capital S, capital G, spiritual gifts. There are tools out there to help us discover what our particular gift is. There are books written about the gifts of the Spirit. And these tools in these books, I would say, are very helpful and very useful and very good. But I find in looking at them that that they are often far more specific about the gifts than the Bible itself is. 
And so before we look at what the Bible has to say about the gifts, I want to suggest this morning a couple of cautions for us. Because many discussions of the gifts of the Spirit assume some things that I'm not sure the Scripture gives us permission to assume. So two cautions for us. First, we need to understand that there is no comprehensive list of the spiritual gifts in the Scripture. Okay, nowhere does the Bible say, all right, now about spiritual gifts, here they all are. There are things mentioned in 1 Corinthians that are not included in Romans or Ephesians. The Romans did not have a comprehensive list of the gifts. Neither did the Corinthians, neither did the Ephesians. And so I'm not sure that it's helpful for us to just pool these passages and think that we then do have a comprehensive list of all the gifts. Now, the reason that's important to realize is because I think it allows for the possibility of spiritual gifts that may not be mentioned as such in the Scripture. For example, some people have a, rem- a remarkable ability to lead God's people in worship through something like music. And some don't. I have seen uh, worship leaders, even worship pastors, who who string a bunch of songs together, and they fit, but they think that they have led worship. I have seen others, as we all have, of people who are able to work with an instrument or a team of musicians to put together a set of songs, and by using these songs and scripture and prayer and words, have a remarkable ability to help focus our attention and bring our hearts near to God again. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that worship leading through music is a spiritual gift. And I don't want us to think that somebody who's good at that, yeah, but that's not their spiritual gift because it doesn't make the list. Others have an extraordinary desire and ability to pray. Now, we are all called to pray. But there are those who have a drive, you could call it, to pray. They can pray for hours at a time. They love it, even though it is draining, and the prayers have effect. We sometimes call them prayer warriors. Does the fact that prayer is not named as a spiritual gift in Scripture mean that there is not a special gift that God has given to people to call them and enable them to pray? So I want to be careful of assuming that we have in the Scripture a comprehensive list of all the spiritual gifts, because I don't believe that we do. And the second caution is to notice that the spiritual gifts are not defined. The gift of speaking in tongues is not defined, and I'll come back to that in a few moments. The scripture we read this morning talked about the message of wisdom, the message of knowledge. Apparently, two different things. What are they? They're not defined. The gift of faith which is somehow apparently different from the faith that we have in Christ, the faith that saves us. There is a gift of faith given to some. And what is that? I don't know. Some, I think, are obvious to us if we think for a moment. Administration, generosity, hospitality. But most of the gifts are not defined in the Scripture. And I'm leery when I read definitions of some of these gifts. Now, some of these definitions that people give might be right. But we need to be aware that they don't necessarily come to us from the Scripture. So we just need to be a little bit careful when we're reading and studying about the spiritual gifts. So for those two reasons, we don't have a comprehensive list, and they're not defined. 
I think we don't know as much about the gifts as sometimes we think we know, and we need to exercise caution, even me this morning, in speaking with authority about the gifts. And we need discernment when we read and study about them. Now, what do we know? What can we say with confidence about the spiritual gifts? Well, a number of things. First, and obviously they are, they're gifts. They are given to us by the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, they're not earned by us. That if we attain to a certain level of spirituality, we are given a particular gift or we graduate from administration to prophecy. Nor are they things that we can set our sights on and develop within ourselves. I know of one person who went to speaking in tongues classes. That's not how the gifts work. Okay, the gifts are just that. They're gifts. They are given to us by the sovereign will of God. Now, those of you who get to work with me in the context of church know that I am a lousy administrator. Now, there are things that I can learn and skills that I can develop to become a better administrator, and I need to do that. But it is not and probably will never be my gift. For others of you, it's different. You love administration. You love details. You love being tasked with looking after all of the finer points of a project or a ministry or even overseeing your home. This is a gift that the Holy Spirit has given to you that he's not given to everyone and certainly not given to me. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4 speaks of gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the Spirit gives them to each one just as he determines. And so they're gifts. Secondly, we know that they are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says to each one, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is given for the common good. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit, and he compares the Holy Spirit to the wind. Now, you cannot see the wind, but you can see the manifestation of the wind. You can tell that the wind is present when you see the grass bending or the trees breaking or the roofs being lifted off of a house. There is manifestation of the presence of wind. And the Holy Spirit is like that. He manifests his presence through, in this case, the gifts of the Spirit. Now, we've all, I'm going to put myself a little bit on the spot. We have all heard preachers preach a sermon that was theologically accurate and well-structured, but with no fire. You've also heard sermons communicated by people where the Word of God was open to you in such a way that it was clear and stirred something within you, and you knew that God had spoken to you through His Word, that God Himself was opening the Scripture and speaking directly into your life. Now, what's the difference between those two things? In one, the spiritual gift of preaching and teaching was in operation, and it manifested the very real presence and activity in that moment of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit was active in one and maybe not in the other. The third thing we know is that every, every believer has a gift. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 says, each one. And verse 11, again, each one. And right after that, Paul says very strongly that in the body of Christ, no one has the right to say, I have nothing to contribute. 
Everyone has a part to play. Everyone is valuable. Everyone is needed in the life of the church. Everyone has not only a valuable contribution to make, but a necessary contribution to make to the life and the ministry of the church. When is the last time that you saw a movie? Do you ever watch the credits roll by when the movie is done? I am astonished at the hundreds, sometimes thousands of names that scroll by. All of the people that are needed to put together even just a simple two-hour movie. Not just directors and stars and producers, but caterers, costume artists, and key grips and gaffers. And if anyone knows what those guys do, let me know because I haven't got a clue, but they show up all the time. And in the church, there are many necessary parts to be played. And every Christian has been given at least one gift, one area in which they can make a unique contribution to the church. No one is exempt. God has gifted all of us. From prayer to hospitality to preaching to administration to leadership to generosity to music to evangelism, everyone who is a Christian has been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. Now, what are the gifts for? Well, they have two purposes, or better, they have one twofold purpose. The gifts are given by the Spirit to each one in order to increase the health of the church and to increase the effectiveness of the church's ministry. Okay, to increase the health of the church. 1 Corinthians 12 says, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And that means that whatever gift that you have been given, you have been given that gift for the good of all of us. And that makes sense. On Monday this past week, there was a problem with a water main on the street just outside of our house. And so we had the water to our house shut off for a while. And the city of Calgary parked an emergency supply of water in a trailer right outside our home that we and our neighbors got to use. And then a city crew came and repaired the leak, and we had water again after two or three days. The city crew came in, came in a truck that somebody else had built. They repaired the problem according to the knowledge and the skills that somebody else had taught them. And when we had water in our house again, it was because a whole bunch of people's skills and gifts had come together and hit the sweet spot and, and enable us to enable the problem to be fixed and us to have water again. Now, I am a pastor. That means I am not a farmer and I am not an architect, but I am glad that there are other people who grow food and who build homes and teach in our schools and who make and enforce laws because none of us can do it all in our community. In our own bodies, our feet benefit when our eyes do our job so that we don't step on a nail or stub our toe. If our digestive system doesn't do its part, we get tired and weak and the bones in our arms become brittle and weak. Each part of the body does its part for the common good. And so it is in the church. It is for the common good that you have gifts. Most of you are not preachers and don't want to be. And whatever you think of me as a preacher, you are glad that I was not the one doing the stage renovation. Trust me. You're glad I'm not in the kitchen or looking after the finances. Because we all have a unique and a different contribution to make. 
And in 1 Corinthians 14, in what I think is a key passage, the Bible says that prophecy is a better gift than speaking in tongues. And it says why? Because prophecy, is more, uh, prophecy more explicitly builds up the church. And the purpose of the gifts is to make the church healthy and to make it strong. And so prophecy as a gift that does that is a greater gift. And it follows then that gifts, when they are not exercised in the church, compromise the health of the church. So there's a challenge here for me and for us to take personal responsibility for the health of the church by exercising our own gift. Okay, the purpose of the gifts is to increase the health of the church. And secondly, to increase the effectiveness of the ministry of the church. In the book of Acts, it was the spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel accompanied by healings and other miracles that made people listen and sit up and take notice and believe what was being spoken about the gospel of Christ. It was the manifestation of the Spirit that made the preaching effective. And people came to Christ and the church grew. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said that when he came to that city of Corinth to preach Christ, he said, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So the purpose of the gifts is to increase our health and to equip us for the task to which we've all been commissioned, to make disciples and to be witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And when we are all exercising our gifts, we're better at what we do as a church makes us more effective in our ministry and mission. So the gifts strengthen us inwardly by increasing our health and strengthen us outwardly by increasing our effectiveness. Now, I need to take a moment or two this morning to talk about the gift of tongues. Uh, it's, it's a high-profile gift, and there are a lot of questions about it. And it's high profile largely because of the Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century, followed by the charismatic movement. And charismata, incidentally, is the Greek word meaning gift of grace. Now, I want to say, first of all, that the church and our church owes a huge debt to these movements for recovering for us a much-needed emphasis on the Holy Spirit and his ministry and on his gifts. Let me also say this morning that I do not believe personally that the supernatural gifts, like tongues and healings in particular, stopped at the end of the New Testament. There are some people who do believe that, and I've heard many of their arguments and don't find them convincing, and so you need to know that this is the perspective that I bring to this morning's message. Now, about speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues occurs only three times in the whole book of Acts, okay, a book that spans about 30 years. It occurs in chapters 2, 10, and 19. In chapter 2, it's on the occasion of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first came upon the followers of Jesus. And in addition to the sound of the mighty rushing wind and the appearance of tongues of fire that rested on them, they began to speak in tongues or languages, same word. And the purpose seems to be, in that occasion, so that Jews from other lands could hear and understand the message of Christ in their own languages. 
The second occasion is in Acts chapter 10. And here the gospel is being preached to the Gentiles for the very first time. And when the Gentiles hear it, the Holy Spirit, it says, fell upon them and they began to speak in tongues. And it's clear from chapter 10, verses 45 and 46, and then when Peter explains it later in chapter 11, verses 15 to 17, it's clear that in this case, tongues is given as a sign to the Jews of the fact that the community of Jesus was not only for Jews, but that God was welcoming Gentiles into the community of faith. Now, this was a major, major paradigm shift for the first Christians. And it took a very clear manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these Gentiles to show the Jews that God was at work. And that manifestation, that sign, was the gift of speaking in tongues, a very obvious and visible and audible sign. The third occasion is in Acts chapter 19, when Paul comes to the city of Ephesus. At the end of chapter 18, there was a, a preacher named Apollos who had come through Ephesus and converted some people. But Apollos did not know about Christian baptism, only the baptism of John the Baptist, which was a precursor or a um, kind of a shadow of which Christian baptism was the substance. And so Apollos had to be taught more fully. Then in chapter 19, when Paul comes to Ephesus, he comes upon some disciples who had apparently been converted by Apollos, but have not been baptized in the name of Jesus, and who know nothing of the Holy Spirit. So Paul teaches them, baptizes them, and again, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they speak in tongues. And it seems to me that the, the gift of tongues in that occasion was was given as a sign from God that what they had heard was the full revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Ephesus then began, uh, became the base for all of Paul's ministry in Asia and Greece, a ministry of which these men would have been the very nucleus, the, the birth of the church in that ministry. So it seems that the gift of tongues was given by the Spirit at unique and pivotal points in the growth of the church. Okay, these are the only recorded instances in Scripture in which people spoke in tongues except for one self-reference by Paul to the fact that he also speaks in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14. Now again, this is pretty important, I think, for us to realize because some have read through the book of Acts and concluded that whenever someone came to faith, they spoke in tongues. We just don't have enough evidence to warrant a conclusion like that. Okay, a mention of speaking in tongues is, to me, conspicuously absent in the record of the 3,000 who got saved at Pentecost or the description of the early church at the end of Acts chapter 2. It's absent when the Samaritans were converted in chapter 8. It's absent in Paul's conversion in chapter 9 or in the conversions of Lydia and the jailer in chapter 16. And when Paul asks rhetorically in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29, are all apostles, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues? The clearly implied answer is, well, no, we don't all have the same gift. Not all Christians speak in tongues. And outside of these three occasions in Acts, tongues is mentioned in the New Testament only elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. 
And Paul talks about it in a little more detail in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians because he wants to correct some abuses of the gift and clear up some confusion about the gift, to reset the priorities. And in fact, in that chapter, he explicitly downplays the significance of the gift of tongues. So speaking in tongues occurs pretty minimally in Scripture. It's just not a very high-profile gift, and we need to be aware of that. And in addition, where it does occur in Scripture, it is never defined. Okay, I mentioned earlier that the gifts are not defined in Scripture. That is, we cannot say with confidence, this is what the gift of speaking in tongues is. The closest, I think, that the Bible comes to a definition of speaking in tongues is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, which says, One who speaks in tongues, speaks in a tongue, speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. And based on this verse and on personal experience, some people have thought that the gift of tongues is a, that tongues is a devotional language, a prayer language, by which we are able to commune with God with words outside of our normal vocabulary. And that might be true. But in Acts chapter 2, in the occasion of Pentecost, the audience clearly did understand what was being said. And they heard it in their own language. And so tongues apparently somehow can include both earthly languages not known to the speaker, but by which he's enabled to speak by the Holy Spirit, or potentially a, a, a divine or heavenly or prayer devotional language. In fact, the word tongues is the word languages. As I said, it is the same word. When you see tongues in Scripture, you are reading the word language. So world languages, devotional or divine language, Maybe both. And this is one of those things where the experience of Christians over the years sheds light for us in what the Scripture only hints at. But we need to be aware of the risks of having our experience inform our understanding of Scripture and not the other way around. So there's a certain mystery to the whole idea of tongues. And it's, it's hard to speak with any confidence about it. I have never spoken in tongues, and my guess is that some of you have, and I think that's wonderful. And my last comment about tongues is that in 1 Corinthians, at least, it seems to be the only gift given primarily for the benefit of the individual, that if it's to have benefit for the church as a whole, it needs to be interpreted, and there is a gift of interpretation given primarily for that purpose. So chapter 14 says, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. And by the way, I should go on record as saying that if you believe that you have the gift of speaking in tongues and that you have a word from God to speak to us today or any day, then let me know. And if we have someone here who's known to the church with the ability to interpret, then that word should be given and we should have it interpreted that we might hear what God has to say to us. Because the Bible's pretty clear that in the context of public worship, which is what we're doing here, speaking in tongues should only take place if it can be interpreted so that the whole church can be built up and strengthened. So, 
Those are my comments concerning tongues this morning, that it occurs minimally in the book of Acts, in unique circumstances, and then only in two chapters of 1 Corinthians. And therefore, it can't be assumed to be normative for all of us, that it's never defined, and that for the church to benefit by it, it must be interpreted. Now, I want to give one last thing concerning the gifts, and that is the principle concerning the use of the gifts. And that is that the proper use of the gifts will always honor Christ. Paul begins his whole discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 by saying that he didn't want his readers to be ignorant about the spiritual gifts. And he says that when they were pagans, they were led astray, implying by that that Christians, conversely, ought not to be confused about the things of the Spirit. And then he says this in verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in or by the Holy Spirit. Now, why does he insert that right there? He's just started talking. He says, I want you to know about the gifts. And he's about to launch into a long teaching unit about the gifts. But before he does that, he inserts this. Why does he do that? I think that what Paul is saying is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whether it's in relation to gifts or in relation to his work of convicting people of sin and opening their minds and hearts to understand the truth of the gospel, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is always to testify to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the whole discussion of gifts that he's about to give is given in that context so that we may understand that the gifts are given in order that the increased health of the church and effective ministry of the church are for the ultimate sake of the lordship of Jesus Christ and for his glory. That the lordship of Christ might be experienced by us and proclaimed by us. Okay, the spiritual gifts ultimately are about Jesus. They are not about us. They're not just for the body, period. They are for the body of Christ. That is an overview, I think, of what the Scripture does and doesn't say about the gifts. And I, it's very much kind of a teaching lecture kind of thing, but I hope that it's helpful, shed some light, and give some context. Now, it is very important for us, not just that we know about the gifts, um, that we understand intellectually about the gifts, but what do they mean for us? How do, we, how do we put them into practice? How do we become a part of the game? How do I find my sweet spot knowing what I now know? And I want to take the next three or four minutes, just very briefly, to ask you to think about these questions. If you're not sure what your gift is or gifts are, your answers to these questions will help bring some clarity to that. And here are the questions. First, what do I enjoy doing? Think of a time that you really loved what you were doing, not necessarily in the church. Maybe you were coaching a sport. Maybe you were having people over in your home or throwing, you know, the, the family reunion happens at your house because you love putting that together. You loved being a student. You loved building this. You loved redecorating the house. You loved working with seniors or writing and playing music or you loved being in a leadership role. Think of a time when you just loved what you were doing. What comes to mind? 
Write it down. Remember it. And second question, what am I good at? What am I good at? What do I put my hand to and find success? Am I good with numbers? Am I good at building? Am I good at teaching? Am I good at music? Am I good at cooking or sports or at acting, designing? Okay, what am I good at? When I was 19, 20, 21 years old, um, I was out of high school, didn't think I'd ever go to college, and was working in a truss manufacturing plant, kind of cutting two-by-fours all day, every day. And I thought, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. And so I thought, I should go back to school, go to college. But what should I do when I'm in college? And a friend of mine asked me those two questions and said, where those two things come together, that's probably what you should pursue as a career. That might be what God wants you to do. What are you good at? What do you love doing? So I went to college as an English major, and then God began to steer me once I was moving into ministry. What do you love doing? What are you good at? And third, and maybe most importantly in the context of the church, what are other people affirming in me? There were a number of people that suggested the idea of pastor to me long before I ever thought about it for myself. And it was their affirmations that became a significant part of my discerning God's call. And what have people noticed about you and said, man, you were really good at that. Man, that was really effective. When you did this at this such and such a time, that was great. What do people affirm in you? And I'm going to pause now for a couple of minutes and ask you to think and maybe write down your answers to those questions. And I think that we can confidently say that where the answers to those three questions come together, you will find that unique way in which God has gifted you to strengthen the church's health and effectiveness for the glory of Jesus Christ. And what's beautiful about that is that it will give you deep satisfaction as you pursue that. Because that's how God works. You will find your sweet spot. You will find the hole that shapes the peg that you are. So for two minutes, let's just stop, ask those questions. What do I love doing? What am I good at? What do other people affirm in me? And then we'll close the service. Or what it might be. How many of you could confidently put up your hand and say, yeah, I think I know what it is. How many could do that? Okay, about, about half of us. If, if you raise your hand, my challenge to you is, is that gift being exercised in the context of the church? If you did not raise your hand, two things. One is, I'd encourage you to ask somebody who knows you well, what do you think my gift might be? Because sometimes people see things in us that we can't see ourselves. The other one is on the bottom of the insert that has the sermon outline on it, there are a couple of resources available. One of them is an online thing, and I'm always leery of tools, but I find them helpful. And you may want to just pursue that and get a sense from that inventory that questionnaire of what your gift might be. And then once you figure that out, try it and see if it feels like your sweet spot or not. But let's all serve in our gifts together for the sake of the health and the effectiveness of the church and encourage one another as we do that.
in your other homework is once you leave this place, if you're aware of a gift in someone else, affirm them for it today. Affirm them for it today. I'm going to close our time in prayer and ask for God to make clear to us those gifts that he has given to us today. Let's pray. Lord, I'm really thankful that you've made us all different. By making us different, you've, you've made the church a real work of art, a beautiful thing, a beautiful creation. And I thank you that I get to be surrounded by people who have gifts that I need and I don't have. And you've made necessary the reality of family, body, community. Thank you for that. I thank you that you've loved each one of us enough to include us, invite us in your kingdom work, and that you've given us what we need to do what you call us to do. And I want to pray just for us this morning, for those maybe who are not conscious of their gift, that you would give them encouragement this morning and discernment to have a sense of how you've created them. And as they ask the questions, what am I good at, what do I love doing, what do others affirm in me, that you would give them answers and clarity and give them the courage to explore and test. Give us the courage to change if the area in which we're serving is not the area you've called us to. To serve purely out of necessity. There's a need for that, but would you help us each to find our sweet spot that we can serve effectively and with joy. And may the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all of them, be unleashed here so that the Holy Spirit can be made manifest in this church for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. As you go from here, we are dismissed. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord show you things. May the Lord let you know what he invites you, what service he invites you to, and may he fill you with joy, much joy, as you experiment with that and grow in that. Go in peace. The Lord is with you. Amen.